Well, hello, podcasters, and welcome to a fun-filled, sunny episode number 41 of our Banking Litigation podcast. Well, thankfully, we've all managed to escape the winter that was London's summer this year and get some sun somewhere else. But it's now it's back to school, and reality is dribbling back down the window. Uh, but luckily for you, podcasters, we've all done our homework. So I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, show and tell for the class today. Uh, hello, co-host Kerry, how is your summer? Yeah, very good, thanks John, nice to see you. Excellent, and look, today we're joined by Ace Now Senior Associate, congratulations on the promotion Scott, uh, Scott Warren, uh, who'll be uh, talking to us about, about some very topical issues. Uh, Alright, so who's going to kick off today's episode? Uh, I think that'll be me then, John. Um, so, uh, over the summer holidays, in addition to realising the need for copious quantities of bug spray when camping in Italy, I also made time to have a little look at the decision in Philip and Barclays, a Supreme Court case hotter than the lost conversion of a London terrace on a summer scorcher like today. Mm. Uh, it's the summer talk of the banking town, Kerry. Can you remind our podcasters of the facts? Yeah, of course. So... The court considered the application of the so-called quince care duty to the victim of an authorised push payment fraud, otherwise known as an APP fraud. In an APP fraud, the victim is induced by fraudulent means to deliberately authorise their bank to send a payment to a bank account controlled by the fraudster. And here, the claimant was unfortunately deceived into instructing the bank to transfer £700,000 from her account in the belief that she was assisting an investigation by the FCA and the National Crime Agency and that the money would be safe. Unknowingly, she transferred the sum to the fraudsters' international bank accounts and the money was, of course, never seen again. Uh, the claimant alleged that the bank owed and breached its quince care duty by paying the funds out of her account when there were allegedly red flags to indicate that she was being defrauded. The present appeal related to an application for strikeout or reverse summary judgment brought by the bank arguing that it did not owe a legal duty of the kind alleged by the claimant, principally because the Prince Care duty did not extend to individual customers. As you know, Kerry, I was on secondment to the defendant bank in question at the time of the High Court hearing and working on this case. And his honour Judge Russon KC, as he now is, initially struck out the case. However, the claimant appealed to the Court of Appeal, which found that summary judgment in favour of the bank was wrongly entered and should be set aside. Yes, that's right, Scott. And so the bank appealed. And drumroll, please. Uh. The Supreme Court unanimously allowed the appeal and granted summary judgment in favour of the bank, holding that it was not arguable that the bank owed the alleged quince care duty. Now, the quince care duty, so-called, has caused a significant degree of controversy and confusion over the years. Uh, and I know that I, alongside I think many others in the sector, was impatiently awaiting the Supreme Court's decision uh, to provide some much-needed clarity on quince care. So what do you think the key takeaway uh, from the decision is, Kerry? Well, in my view, the key to the decision is the word validity. The Supreme Court made it crystal clear that there will never be a conflict between the bank's uh, duty to ex execute a valid mandate and the bank's general duty of reasonable skill and care when processing customer payments. And that's because the duty of reasonable skill and care is actually very narrow 
limited to interpreting, ascertaining, and acting in accordance with the instructions of a customer, a phrase that is now very well embedded in my, in my brain. The Supreme Court has also clarified that what we have all been referring to as the quince care duty is not some sort of special rule or duty. It's just one application of the bank's duty of, of reasonable skill and care to a particular set of facts. And I think that's a very different way of analysing the interaction between quince care, or rather the general duty of reasonable skill and care, and the duty on banks to process their customers' payments promptly. I mean, the way we were all analysing this before was if these two duties were in conflict with one another. Yes, exactly, Scott. And this different lens is really important because it means that if a payment instruction is clear and valid, then the duty of reasonable skill and care, which includes the quince care duty, will not be engaged. I can see the obvious implications for uh, authorised post-payment fraud claims, presumably where a customer has given the instruction themselves. It will, by definition, be valid, unless it's unclear in some way, you know, for example, if it's missing account details. Yeah, exactly right again, John. What great students you and Scott make. Thank you. Um, in the APP fraud scenario, the duty of reasonable skill and care, whether you call this quince care or whatever, simply cannot be engaged because the payment instruction is validly made by the customer who is the victim of the fraud. So the bank must process that payment promptly. We've danced around the word quince care mm. a bit. So I understand you were saying, Kerry, that the quince care duty is simply part and parcel of the bank's duty to use reasonable skill and care when processing customer payments. But you said it will apply to a particular factual scenario. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, although the so-called quince care duty was not viewed by the Supreme Court as a separate rule, the panel acknowledged that it's under the umbrella of the general duty of reasonable skill and care, which arises in an agency scenario. So specifically, where an agent of the customer purports to give a payment instruction. So the Supreme Court could have struck out the case on the basis that Mrs. Phillip gave the payment instruction on her own behalf uh, and was not in that agency situation. Well, yes, but if Mrs. Phillips' instruction had been unclear in some way, then the duty of reasonable skill and care could still have been engaged. So this case was less to do with the quince care agency point and very much focused on the general duty of care and validity. Validity is a sort of knockout blow in these cases. So sort of a key takeaway in a nutshell is that banks do not owe a legal duty to protect customers from authorised push payment frauds. Correct, John, they do not. And the court refused to extend the law to recognise or impose such an obligation to. Um, while the court recognised the growing social problem of these frauds and the hardship caused to victims, the court said that the reimbursement model for victims of APP fraud is a question for regulators and government. It is not the role of the courts. And Kerry, did the Supreme Court make any other observations regarding quince care? Yes, it did. Um, it said that the so-called quince care duty, I'll emphasise again, the part of the duty of reasonable skill and care which arises in an agency scenario is not limited to corporate customers and will apply wherever one person is given authority to give payment instructions to a bank on behalf of another. So, for example, in the context of a joint account. But per everything I've just said, this duty can still only be engaged where the payment request is not valid. There are some other wide, wider implications which I don't have time to delve into now, but one to highlight is the characterisation of these claims and whether they're properly actions for damages on the basis of a breach of duty of care or an action in debt. 
and the Supreme Court has confirmed that they are debt claims. And so a customer will have a claim in debt for the full reconstituted balance of the account, which is payable on demand if the claim can be made out. And this may have real practical consequences for future litigation. And that's because the relationship between a bank and its customer is ultimately one of debtor and creditor. But anyway, um, has the Philip and Barclays litigation then come to an end, uh, a bit like the summer had last week? Um, I'm afraid not, John. Mm. So the Supreme Court granted permission for the claimant to maintain an alternative claim based on the bank's alleged failure to take adequate steps after it was alerted to the fraud. Although the court doubted the merits of this argument, it refused summary judgment. Uh, The judgment gives very little away about this alternative claim, but having listened to the Supreme Court hearing, um, I think this has the potential to open a can of worms. Well, look, that's extremely interesting, Kerry. Thank you very much. And if you'd uh, podcasters like to read more about this case, there's a link uh, to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to continue the show and tell with the highlight of my summer, which is two cases on derivative actions. Very good, John. Let's hear them. Thank you, Kerry. Well, look, the first one I think we've discussed before is Client Earth and Shell PLC. We, we talked about it in our last episode, and I'm bringing it up again because following the High Court's decision on the papers, Client Earth exercised its right under CPR 19.5 to ask the court to reconsider the decision as an oral hearing. I'm sure most of our audience are aware of this case, especially if they listened Mm. to the last episode. But can you quickly remind us of the facts, John? Absolutely. Uh, So Client Earth um, is an environmental charity and a minority shareholder in Shell. And it sought to bring a derivative action on behalf of Shell against Shell's directors to challenge the director's uh, response to the risks posed to Shell's business by climate change. Now, the High Court initially refused permission uh, on the papers. And, John, did the oral hearing make any difference to that? No, it did not, Scott. Uh, The High Court yet again dismissed Client Earth's application, uh, finding that Client Earth had failed to establish a prima facie case for granting permission, as is required under the Companies Act, Section 2612. The judgment highlights that the court will not generally interfere in company management decisions, particularly where uh, they require directors to balance competing considerations, and nor is the court likely to grant permission where it considers that the action has been brought for an ulterior purpose, um, such as a campaign group's own policy agenda. So, John, did any interesting points come out of this hearing, though? Well, many, uh, Scott. Um, uh, Client Earth originally argued that when considering climate risk, Uh, The directors were subject to various incidental duties, uh, which rose from their statutory duties under the Companies Act 2006. So, uh, for example, uh, giving appropriate weight to climate risk. And the court noted at the oral hearing that there was a subtle but important shift in this argument by Client Earth uh, from a question of strategy to one of implementation. In particular, Client Earth's new position was that even if it would have been wrong for the court to intervene in the director's commercial decision to adopt uh, Shell's climate strategy, there was no reason why the court should not intervene to give directions as to how that strategy should be implemented once adopted. And John, what did the court think of this angle? Well, the court rejected that argument too, uh, agreeing with Shell that if the court should not interfere with the commercial question of the strategy to be involved, the same principle of restraint should be applied uh, to the means by which that strategy was to be implemented as well. Even though client has lost, I think this claim reflects an anticipated trend of litigation brought by NGOs and activist investors. 
as businesses move towards the goal of net zero. And this, I don't think, is going to be limited to claims against energy companies. So these judgments should be of interest to all publicly listed organisations, I think, including banks. Yeah, and look, we can discuss on another episode, but what's quite interesting about this type of litigation we're seeing at the moment is the, the NGOs, the charities, etc., are trying to make, trying to sort of pin the decision-making um, on discernible individuals and, and try to stop those individuals, make those individuals stop and think because they're in, in the limelight. As I say, we've done another podcast on that. I'm very happy to pick that up in another, another episode. Anyway, podcasters, if you'd like to read more about this decision, uh, there's a link uh, to a blog post in the show notes. Right, uh, my second case also considers uh, derivative action procedure, uh, on which I feel we're all gaining some new credentials, uh, but where it has been used this time by a customer against its bank in circumstances where the customer um, had been transferred to the bank's restructuring unit. Uh, so this is the case of Ryan and HSBC, and briefly, uh, the facts. So the claimants were shareholders uh, of an AIM-listed company. The bank had made various loans to the company, which subsequently faced cash flow difficulties, uh, and the company was therefore transferred to the bank's loan management unit. Now, the company's AIM listing was suspended, and it went into administration due to, on, on the claimant's case, the bank's, quote, overarching plan, close quote, to take control of the business and run it down, uh, and run it for the bank's own benefit. Now, the claimants asserted that the bank had acted as a shadow director of the company, uh, allowing them to bring a derivative action against the bank under the Act. And the, company, and the claimants were successful in obtaining permission to continue the claim at the first stage on the papers, unlike uh, the client earth decision that I've just covered. I thought it was quite interesting that the claimants were successful in obtaining permission at the first stage, John. Clearly, the court considered that there was a prima facie case sufficient that it was not bound to dismiss the claim at the outset. As did I, Scott, but fortunately for the bank, permission at the second stage was refused. Um, So what did the court say, John? Well, the court ultimately refused permission on the basis that no person concerned with promoting the success of the company would seek to continue the claim. And the court found that the claim was weak, that's the court's uh, word, and, quote, the only rational decision, close quote, would be to refuse permission. That sounds fairly decisive. Uh, I thought that the argument that the bank was acting as a shadow director was quite an inventive approach. And what did the court say to that one? It's interesting. It's something that banks are obviously acutely aware of in this kind of scenario. The court was pretty decisive um, on this aspect also. It found the allegation to be uh, there was again lacking essential core facts. Close quote. It referred to the previous case law and said that strong positions of influence taken by creditors over debtors do not equate to shadow directorships. Uh, a creditor is entitled to protect its own interest without necessarily becoming a shadow director. That makes entire sense, John. And I'm guessing we also have a blog post on this case. And that was a correct guess, Scott. We certainly do. Now let me hand over back to you for your show and tell. Thank you very much, John. My show and tell today is the recent Supreme Court decision on litigation funding agreements, PACAR and the Road Haulage Association. Do you know what? That case name, um, everyone seems to have struggle struggles with um, pronouncing, but I quite like to say it a bit like a bird. PACAR! Makes it really easy to remember. Anyway. <laughs> mm. Thank you for that, Kay. And I'm interested to hear about this one uh, because there's been a lot of coverage in legal press because of the potential impact on the litigation funding of PACAR. Yes, indeed. Although a case in the competition sphere, mm. the decision also has wide-ranging implications for litigation funding in commercial cases, which I will endeavour to draw out. 
So, Scott, can you remind our listeners of what a litigation funding agreement is, please? Of course I will. So, a litigation funding agreement is an agreement between a claimant and a third party who plays no part in the conduct of the litigation, where the funder agrees to finance all or part of the legal costs of the litigation in return for a fee payable from the proceeds recovered by the funded litigant if successful. So this decision came out of the quote-unquote trucks litigation in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, or CAT, uh, as part of the certification process for the claim to proceed under a collective proceedings order, or CPO, as they're collectively known, the court had to consider the adequacy of the funding arrangements of the class representative. A preliminary issue on whether the applicant's litigation funding arrangements were in fact damages-based agreements, or DBAs, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a decision which has caused ripples, or shockwaves, depending on who you were speaking to, the Supreme Court held that the litigation funding agreements in question were in fact DBAs within the meaning of the relevant legislation which regulates such agreements. As the parties acknowledged that the funding agreements in this case did not comply with the requirements of the regulatory regime, they were therefore unenforceable. This means that there are no effective funding agreements in place for the claims, which is a prerequisite for a claim to be certified as a collective proceeding in the CAT. So you mentioned that the consequences of this judgment will go much further than just this case? Yes, the implications of this decision are potentially dramatic, since it means most existing litigation funding agreements in place for litigation in the English courts are probably unenforceable, or at least they were prior to the Supreme Court judgment and may have required some considerable surgery subsequently. This is one of the areas where there is disagreement in the market as to the significance of the decision. Some litigation funders consider that the judgment is being slightly catastrophized by law firms. They say that while the decision will impact the drawing of lots of funding arrangements, any amendment should be relatively straightforward. The main complaint from funders is actually about the administrative headache this will cause, or cause before their summer holidays. But specifically for competition cases, the decision appears to prohibit litigation funding agreements where they're entered into in respect of opt-out collective proceedings in the CAT, since the statutory regime governing such cases provides that a DBA is unenforceable if it relates to opt-out collective proceedings. Yes, John. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will have to see how any such existing potentially non-compliant funding arrangements can be amended, if they can at all, and how the CAT will case manage that, especially for claims well advanced past the certification stage. This will mean funders moving away from a percentage of the damages as a way of calculating their fee and moving towards a multiple of the funding in order to fall outside of the DBA regime. Collective proceedings in the CAT almost always rely on third-party funding, so we're certainly going to see some dramatic consequences arise from this case either way. Yeah, I agree with that, Kev. We'll also see certain quarters lobbying, no doubt, for amendments to the statutory regime to permit the use of at least some DBAs in the context of opt-out collective proceedings, I suspect. I agree entirely. Well, there is a link in the show notes to our blog post if you would like to read more about this case in detail. I hope the podcast has heard that, Scott. You're a little bit quiet there at the end, but thank you very much indeed. Well, I think that wraps up the class uh, show and tell uh, for today. Well, actually, John, Mm -hmm. I've got another development to share. 
Um, it's not a case, but a procedural update. Okay, you're going off script. You sound a bit like a teacher's pet. Oh, yeah, I'll take that as the highest compliment. Thank you. John. Um, I just wanted to flag that the UK government has announced that it's proceeding with plans to introduce compulsory mediation as a mandatory procedural step in all small claims in the county court. So all parties and cases allocated the small claims uh, track, which is most claims valued below £10,000, will be required to attend a free mediation appointment with a court mediator before their case can progress to a hearing. Ah oh yes, this is the first stage of the government's plan to integrate a mandatory mediation step into higher value claims in the county court. Yes, exactly. And you can read more about it in more detail on um, in our blog post, which is linked in the show notes. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, I also have a procedural oh, update. Not you as well. Yes, go on, Scott. It's an arbitration case, John. Uh, Paywood and Chechkin. Uh, the commercial court refused to enforce a foreign-seated arbitration award on the grounds that to do so would be contrary to public policy, including because it was contrary to certain provisions provided under the Consumer Rights Act 2015 and the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, or FISMA. Uh, which the court held were an expression of UK public policy and required the issues to be governed by English law and not to be decided overseas. The case suggests that businesses may have difficulties enforcing foreign judgments or arbitral awards against UK consumers where the underlying contract had a close connection to the UK and the decision applied a contractually agreed foreign governing law without reference to the CRA. The decision will also, I think, be of particular interest to financial institutions as a key consideration for the court was the desire not to stifle the defendant's separate FISMA claim against the claimant, um, which would have been stopped in its tracks had the arbitration award been enforced. Yes, the court said that stifling Mr Chechetkin's claim under FISMA would be contrary to the public policy considerations under FISMA itself including because claims advanced overseas are less likely to come to the attention of the FCA. Once again, there is a link uh, to our blog post in the show notes if you want a deeper dive into the details of the case. That's a very interesting decision. So you're actually seeing the public policy exception to enforcement kicking in. So that is very interesting. Thank you for those two bonus cases, Kerry and Scott, those bonus developments. Well, podcasters, here we are. Uh, as we enjoy the very late summer heat wave. Um, I hope there's uh, enough for you to reflect on uh, as you sit on your uh, loungers. Um, we look forward to welcoming you back for episode uh, number 42. But until then, thank you very much as always to my co-host, Kerry. You're welcome. And to our uh, tip-top visitor, Scott. Um, thank you very much and congratulations again on your senior associate promotion. And Erin, thank, thank you very much for running the show. Thanks, podcasters. Goodbye. <laughs>